The fundamental mindset of almost all Israelis is that, yes, officially we should say that it's important for Jews to feel safe everywhere they live, anywhere in the world. But in truth, the underlying kind of feeling of almost all Israelis, and I'm being simplistic but not too much, is we told you so. Fog of war clouds the Israeli airspace as this episode goes to press. The country's ability to secure its citizens is once again being put to the test by the more than 1,000 rockets fired by Hamas from Gaza over the past 40 hours. This reawakened quagmire sits awkwardly with a pacifying facade deployed a year ago by the Abraham Accords, normalizing ties with the select few Arab nations. A few weeks ago, France's high court ruling in the Sarah Alimi case had the effect of reconnecting Israel's right to exist with its commitment to secure Jews worldwide. In 2017, the 65-year-old Jewish Orthodox woman was cold-bloodedly thrown out of her balcony by a Jew-baiting, Quran-chanting Frenchman of Malian origin. The French judi judiciary's failure to impart justice for the murder reminds the European conscience of Zionism's noble aims, thereby helping rehabilitate Israel's mission in the moral order. As the Alimi family continues a desperate search for justice and Israeli civilians undergo the heaviest rocket fire in a decade, we sit down with Simon Rodin Benzaken, the American Jewish Committee's Europe Director, and Ainad Vilf, former member of the Knesset and author of The War of Return, a widely noted polemic on the Palestinian refugee question. This episode would have been timely if only for the ongoing spike of anti-Semitic hate in Europe and Israel's role in combating it. The escalating conflict in the Gaza Strip and around the recent evictions in Sheikh Jarrah in Jerusalem have added an unfortunate newsy touch. So enjoy the episode. Great. Well, welcome to another episode of Uncommon Decency. Today, we are delighted to welcome two leading uh, intellectuals uh, and advocates who have been working on uh, some of the issues we'll be discussing today, uh, namely uh, the rise of anti-Semitism in Europe is crystallized around uh, the Sarah Limi affair, but also the broader issues concerning uh, the state of Israel and its role fighting against this side and really protecting uh, European citizens of, of Jewish origin and uh, religion. We've got on one end of the line, Simon Rodin-Benzaken, Simon uh, leads uh, the American Jewish Committee's uh, advocacy efforts in Europe, and uh, she's uh, naturally been uh, heavily involved around the campaign for uh, justice to be served in, in the case of uh, Sarah Alimi. And on the other end of the line, joining us from Tel Aviv, Ainat Wilf. She's a renowned intellectual, not just in Israel, but globally. Uh, a lot of our audience will be aware of her works and her advocacy as well on some of the issues of interest to us today. Uh, she served as a member of the, the Israeli Knesset from, from uh, 2010 to 2013 for, for the Havadah, the, the Labour Party, and, and then for independence. She, she'd also previously been uh, been uh, advising uh, former Prime Minister Shimon Peres on foreign policy issues. She's worked also as a consultant, as a, as a venture capital professional, and today she's fresh off publishing her, la her latest book last year, came out under the title The War of Return, and it's a really, really compelling account of the particular role played by the refugee question in the Arab-Israeli uh, conflict uh, historically. But as we begin around the Sarah Alimi case, I thought I'd give maybe some, some context and then uh, turn 
my first question to Simone, just for background, uh, Sarah Limi was a 65-year-old Jewish retiree. She had worked as a doctor. Uh, she was a faithful, uh, orthodox, observant Jewish Parisian woman. Uh, she was cold-bloodedly thrown out of her balcony by, by a Jew-baiting, Quran-chanting Frenchman of Malian origin who had sneaked into her home from the outside after attacking, similarly attacking uh, Madame Alimi's uh, neighbors. The way that this case is unfolded in, in the French uh, judicial system is, is really, really concerning. We've seen how throughout this uh, process, the anti-Semitic nature of the crime has been uh, persistently uh, relativized, uh, you know, toned down by, by, uh, French, by the French uh, judicial establishment. We've also seen the psychiatric and the toxicologic uh, state of the, the murderer uh, been used to alleviate the charge of anti-Semitism and of murder. The most recent, uh, the most recent development here is the uh, Court of Cassation ruling last month that uh, ruled once again against the Alimi family's appeal against the alleged lack of, of criminal liability of the, the assaulter, the murderer, this man by the name of Kobili Traoré. So I, I thought we'd maybe just start by getting some some comment from Simon in terms of what this what this campaign has meant for you, for the American Jewish Committee. What are what are your your hopes and fears? And what is the um, what is the particular state of the advocacy that you work on at this at this juncture? Once we've uh, we've seen from the French judicial establishment that the idea of bringing justice uh, on this particular case isn't uh, isn't isn't doesn't seem to be of particular importance uh, to them. Um, so first of all, for thank you for the the question. Um, first of all, I think what is important to understand is the extent to which this case has really been a shock. Um, to many in uh, the French Jewish community, but far beyond, I think, to um, to the French public in general, um, because um, there is definitely a feeling of leniency, there is a feeling of injustice, uh, there is a feeling that a trial should have taken place um, and that the French public um, has been uh, deprived of that um, trial. Um, and so, as you, the, the, the legal options at this stage are unfortunately rather limited. As you mentioned, the Cour de Cassation, which is the highest uh, legal um, option here in France, has ruled um, that Kobili Traoré, the murderer, uh, is to, deemed to be held um, psychologically irresponsible. Uh, the case is, itself is extremely complex once you start getting into the details. And there are definitely those um, who legitimately argue that it's based on solid legal grounds and psychiatric expertise. There have been uh, three separate psychiatric expertises on, um, the, uh, on the killer. Um, but what I would argue is um, that uh, whatever there might be in terms of solid legal grounds or psychi psychiatric expertise, um, I would argue that the law has turned against justice and frankly against common sense. Um, so uh, this is really the idea, I think, on where the campaign was based upon. Um, the, the fact that um, we were all collectively deprived of a trial that should have, ha have, that should have taken place to help us understand how, what happened, how it could happen, um, and, and basically also give justice to the family itself, of course. Uh, so the legal option at this stage is, uh, is, of course, taking it to the European, of Court, of the European Court of Human Rights. Um, but let's be very honest, it could prove, prove to be very complex. It's lengthy. And we are very uncertain about the out, outcome. Um, there is the Israeli option, the, the, the sister of Sarah Alimi, is an Israeli citizen and she is now um, engaging legal procedure uh, in Israel. Um, but 
I, I have a couple, a couple of comments to that. While I entirely understand uh, the the frustration um, and uh, the despair of the family, um, the outcome is also far from certain. Um, because even if the killer was to be convicted in Israel, um, he would indeed he would not be ex- extradited to Israel as um, the French uh, the French don't extradite uh, French citizens. Um, so there are two other options. Uh, the family has seems to have found grounds for a retrial, uh, which could be based on new testimonial evidence. Um, but again, the conditions are very strict, and the examples of retrials are very rare. Um, and and overall, maybe I, I if I would like to give a little bit of of context. Um, I don't know if we can really speak of of, of leniency um, in, in trialing anti-Semitic cases, but there is definitely a certain perception of it. And I think one of the reasons why there has been this outrage in the Jewish community and, and, and the French nation is because this is not the first time this has happened. Um, and this has been 20, 20 years of anti-Semitic hate crimes in France, 12 anti-Semitic murders. Um, and, and there is, a, I think, a, a certain feeling that anti-Semitism is just not severely and clearly punished here. Um, and, and maybe... Going back to the first case of, of, of an anti-Semitic murder can be in this context un, 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 helpful. The first one happened in 2003. Most people who speak about uh, anti-Semitic murder speak about uh, another Halimi case, Ilana Halimi. But the first one was actually in 2003, and it's not so different. It was a young man by the name of Sebastian Salam, a young French DJ, um, who was killed by a childhood friend, um, who had been on, on psych- psychiatric treatment, who had previously stopped um, that treatment two weeks before, and who came out um, after having stabbed the young man dozens of times, saying, I killed my Jew, I go to heaven, Allah guided me. Uh, he had subsequently been uh, deemed legally in- irresponsible um, because of, as I just mentioned, he had been diagnosed uh, for paranoid schizophrenia. Uh, and um, so the judge decided that he, his, his, his consciousness had been abolished at the time of the fact. Uh, the motive of anti-Semitism was also dropped. Uh, and the dismissal of the charge was pronounced. Um, now, this is where it becomes interesting. Uh, or quite catastrophic, let's put it that way, he was released just a couple of months later from psychiatric care and came back to live in the house of his victim's mother um, because that is where he lived. He was his neighbor. And um, that is obviously something that um, resonates um, today. And so all of this to say that many French Jews and French people in general, I think, have a feeling that there is... um, a lack of justice, that there is a certain leniency, um, that there is not a very clear um, zero tolerance strategy um, in in France, and that ultimately not only they were expecting this particular ca- case to be tried, but I think they were expecting to some extent, um, even though that's probably not possible, uh, the trial of anti-Semitism uh, to take place, to understand 
you know how this how how the craziness of anti-Semitism can be judged, how it revelates, how it happens, uh, what the circumstances were, what the role of the mosque was, um, where the killer had previously gone to, uh, what the, his family surroundings are, what the role of the police was who arrived um, just a few minutes after the neighbors um, had called the police, arrived at the place, but only intervened an hour later. All of this, I think, we didn't understand, we don't understand, plus, again, those 20 years of anti-Semitism, uh, which which has been a constant in, in, in people's lives. And, and, and to turn to Ainat, um, there, is, there is one particular regarding in your answer, Simon, where I think the state of Israel really is justifiably uh, involved. And the sense of abandonment that, that you describe in your answer is has one dimension, which is judicial, right? The sense of uh, the sense of leniency in the way that these anti-Semitic uh, crimes are, are trialed. But it seems like there's a broader dimension just in terms of the security uh, that uh, French Jews are allowed to live under. I still remember when Prime Minister Netanyahu made some really sensitive comments around the security of Jews in France and uh, comments that were kind of contextualized as, as part of a broader campaign to stoke migration from, from France to Israel. And so I wonder if you could give us some, some, um, uh, some, some comment as to how the issue is unfolding in, in Israel, uh, how you see the postures of the state of Israel evolve around the issue of anti-Semitism in Europe. How, how do you expect them to, uh, to evolve uh, as, as the Sarah Alimi case uh, unfolds? So uh, I'm going to be simplistic, but not entirely. The fundamental mindset of almost all Israelis is that yes, officially we should say that it's important for Jews to save, to feel safe everywhere they live, anywhere in the world, that Israel will advocate for this idea that Jews should be able to feel, to live freely and safely in any country. But in truth, the underlying kind of feeling of almost all Israelis, and I'm being simplistic, but not too much, is we told you so. Kind of like, look, Europe is not a safe place for Jews. Herzl sensed it over 100 years ago. He was proven, uh, unfortunately, more than right. Uh, what else would it take you to realize that Europe doesn't want its Jews? So this is much more like, again, we might be polite and what we might speak to no, no, no. It's very important that Jews should feel safe in France and we'll talk to the French prime minister and blah, blah, blah. But I can tell you that the passion is not there uh, because most Israelis say, just leave. And, and that's a very, very common worldview. Uh, so... Yeah, I mean, like when Netanyahu said what he said, I mean, I think a lot of Israelis said, okay, it's insensitive, and you know, and you're saying it on foreign soil, and uh, blah, blah, blah. But but in truth, he spoke to a very instinctive feeling of almost all Israelis, which is maybe I'll add one thing. Uh, Simone went very well into the details of the case, and she said something about the vast gulf between the legal aspects and the sense of justice and common sense. This is how Israelis look at it. Israelis are like, we don't care about the legal issue, whatever. This is clearly an anti-Semitic case. Uh, you know, what, what else do you need? What else do you Jews of France need to understand that it's over and it's been over for a very long time? I wonder if this particular uh, affair is kind of changing the, 
the uh, the narrative that that comes from from both sides. It seems, and this is something you you hear from uh, French Jews. Uh, this particular case is um, is holding them in between two very uncomfortable positions to hold. One of them being the very fair demand for justice. Uh, maybe even sort of symbolic recognition of being a, a contributor to French life that that deserves recognition and, and quite frankly, security and justice. Uh, whilst on the other side, and this seems to have really exacerbated by the by the uh, Savalimi affair, it seems like a lot of French Jews express the um, uncomfortable position of being caught between these fair demands of justice and the uh, suspicion of being doubly loyal. Uh, loyal on, on, on one hand to uh, the French ideals of uh, republicanism and, and kind of a secular state, but on the other hand, their particular advocacy around uh, Jewish questions uh, elevates the suspicion uh, that they're, uh, that in the end, you know, these are, these are uh, a lot of the times these are double uh, nationals. And so th- this is something that you hear. This is a particular point of, of concern that I think is, is really rising among uh, the French Jewish population. So I wonder if, if your work, Simon, uh, has unveiled uh, the sentiment. And I wonder if, to what extent this is, uh, uh, this is being uh, a function of uh, some of the issues you pointed towards in your in your answer in terms of the judicial cooperation, right? Like you already have in French uh, public debate already this notion that uh, Israel is this sort of like extraterritorial uh, state that uh, has no compunction when it comes to uh, um, trespassing the legal uh, perimeters right of its jurisdiction and that will gladly step onto French uh, legal territory just to, to, to trial this. How are you experiencing this this particular campaign? What are you hearing from members of the Alimi family or, or people who have just, you know, reg- who are regularly involved in the campaign? Is, it, is there anything about the uh, advocacy work you do that is changing as a, as a result of the, the Alimi case? Um, listen, I mean, I think there, there are there are many questions in the questions that in the question that you just asked. Um, first and all, first and foremost, I think there is a there is of course a very um, strong symbolic statement um, that I think was intentional by the lawyers and by uh, the family by taking the issue to Israel, uh, knowingly, uh, knowing that that nothing would would actually legally um, result um, from it. But the idea was to say, you know what, you know what, if we don't get justice here, maybe we should get justice elsewhere. And I think this, 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 um, this is at the same time, um, a strong statement. uh, Because I think French Jews have placed their faith in the French institutions. Um, and, you know, by the way, to some extent, uh, rightfully so. I mean, let's be very clear, the French state, um, the French government has, while at the beginning of the years of 2000, uh, been very hesitant since then, has has really stepped, at, uh, stepped up um, generally in the fight against anti-Semitism. But really saying, you know, we we have placed our faith in in you in the fa- in the in the in the state um, in the French government in the justice system. But if you are if you are not able to protect us, then maybe we should question our future here. And I think this is a this is a, a very strong um, a strong statement. But I think one that to some extent makes our lives a little bit more complicated um, because I think. Ultimately, uh, there are uh, two contradicting statements there. Um, On the one hand, French Jews have been trying to convince 
the population um, that the problem of anti-Semitism is not only a problem for Jews, but it is a problem for society at large, and that it requires um, a common fight by the entire country, by civil society, by the governments, by political class, by the media, etc., to fight it. Um, and to some extent, it has worked because, you know, on the positive side, let's be clear, you know, I'm not sure that the case of Sarah Halimi would have made it to the top news in, in many other European countries. Um, it's been on the top news for, for weeks and weeks now. Uh, and there it still continues. If I wanted to submit an op-ed today on Sarah Halimi, I would probably still get it into uh, most, most of the major newspapers because there is generally concern and interest um, about this issue because there is both the understanding that anti-Semitism is a real problem here for in France, not only for Jews, but for French people in general, and that this concerns society at large. So on the one hand, you have this, but on the other hand, you have exactly the, the, the contra contradictory message by taking the issue to, to Israel. And I think to some extent it illustrates... Um, the 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 antagonism that we as a Jewish advocacy organization are experiencing here, the um, conflict that many Jews in France constantly have, uh, feeling profoundly French, feeling profoundly at uh, attached to to the French Republic, to the French nation, uh, but at the same time always wondering. Uh, if if it's if it's not potentially over, as 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 Anat mentioned, you know most Israelis consider us to be naive and 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 a little crazy. Uh, maybe <laughs> we are, um, but I think this 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 conflict that we are that we are constantly experiencing and basically have have been experiencing for twenty years, and now only reinforced with it, with every anti-Semitic act and murder. Um, is, is something that um, that is, is still playing out. And I think it will very much depend on, on the an answer that is given by France itself and by Europe itself more largely. Is France, is Europe capable of uh, sufficiently uh, fighting anti-Semitism on every single level, uh, judicial, uh, police, security, um, societal, political. Um, if the answer is yes, I think we'll, we'll, we'll continue to have these small struggles over the years. If the answer is no, uh, then I fear for the worst and maybe the Israelis are right. Thank you mm. so much, uh, Simone, for your answer and your um, testimony on what is to be a French Jew nowadays. And the complications it has and not an easy struggle to have. I want to pivot a little bit on, on international relations somewhat and onto the question of uh, Abraham Accords, which ties in with his question of anti-Semitism in, in a different way, in a different region. Um, in what unexpected ways do you expect this normalization of Israeli ties with some parts of the Arab world to rebalance the medicine landscape and possibly re-energize a flailing peace process and also weaken the case um, for anti-Semitism in this region? Or do you think um, or do you think this is simply a high high politics between states who have um, common interests and are seeking to to protect them and advance them together? Uh, Einat. So one of the most interesting things to happen with the Abraham Accords is precisely the fact that it did not remain just as high politics and interests. 
when the accords were signed, there seemed to have been almost a concerted effort on behalf of some people to diminish them, to downplay them. Uh, you know, in America, it could have been people or maybe also in Europe, people who didn't want to give President Trump a clear foreign policy win. So they said, look, it's just interest. Uh, these are arms deals. Uh, the UAE is not an important country. Uh, they were never really at war. So you heard all kinds of phrases basically saying, look, guys, it's not a big deal. But I can tell you that from the Israeli perspective, it's actually a huge deal. Because unlike the peace agreements uh, with Egypt and Jordan, which I argue are not really peace agreements, they're better understood as uh, non-belligerence or non-aggression pacts, and they're good for that, but they're not peace agreements. Uh, there's base, there's almost no diplomatic relations. There's certainly no cultural relations, no tourism, no flights. Um, Egypt and Jordan uh, tend to spearhead many of the anti-Israel resolutions in international bodies. Uh, Egypt continues to be the number one producer and disseminator of anti-Semitic content in Arabic. So it's not exactly what you have in mind when you say the word peace, but it's a non-aggression pact and it's been very effective on that. What happened with the UAE and Bahrain, now it's beginning to happen with Morocco, but with Sudan, is that when they signed these agreements, they went all in. Uh, they didn't just say, look, uh, you know, we, we hate Iran and Israel is useful to us, but we still think that Israel is terrible. No, they actually went all in. Uh, uh, economic, not just diplomatic relations, economic relations, flights, tourism, signing various agreements. Uh, and you really also feel the sense of warmth. And this is where it really becomes interesting on the Jewish issue, because it, it goes to a point which I think is relevant across Europe, is relevant certainly these days in the U.S., is the notion that you can somehow have anti-Israel or anti-Zionist sentiment and have that separate from, uh, have that separate from uh, a discussion of the relationship towards the Jews. So... What you see today in the in Bahrain and in the UAE is that they are doing their utmost to provide a warm and open environment for Jewish life. They're renovating the synagogues. They're bringing in a rabbi. They have officials participate in their uh, in their kind of in Jewish rituals. I was on Zoom for a Bahraini uh, Purim celebration with the ambassador. Uh, and I think I think it really goes to the point that says that a country that embraces Israel and embraces Zionism also embraces its Jewish population. Because when the Arab world turned anti-Zionist in the 1940s, the outcome that they was that they also got rid of their Jewish population, even though the vast majority of Jews were not necessarily Zionist or active in Zionist movements. But yet the entire Arab world, all the way from Morocco into the, even the non-Arab world in uh, Iran, basically got rid of its Jews uh, when it turned against Israel and Zionism. And now you're seeing the exact opposite process uh, when Arab countries are warming up to Israel, are warming up to Zionism. So they're also seeking to signal their warmth towards the Jewish people. And I think this really shows you that it all works together. You cannot separate uh, the issues.
And um, and what's interesting really is that the UAE, Bahrain, they're not just embracing Israel, they're embracing Zionism. Uh, after the Abraham Accords, I was able to publish an op-ed with an Emirati young man and woman who wrote with me that they are not just proud Arabs and Muslims, they are also Zionists. And they said, we see no contradiction between being a proud Arab and a proud Muslim and being a Zionist, not just kind of, you know, supporting Jews or having relations with Israel, actually supporting the Jewish right to self-determination. And I have a lot of Emirati friends on Twitter. Whenever someone tries to disparage them by calling them a Zionist as if it's a slur, they're like, of course, what of it? What's the big deal? Uh, why do you think that if I'm an Arab or a Muslim, I have to hate Israel or to be an anti-Zionist? So uh, this is very encouraging. And it's also encouraging because a country like the UAE is truly small, uh, but it punches above its weight. Because for 10 years now, it's the number one country where young Arabs want to come and work. Uh, it's a country that represents a functional Arab future. If you remember, after 9-11, everyone talked about the dysfunctionality of the Arab world and the development issues. And along comes a country like the UAE and says, look, the Arab future doesn't have to be all misery and illiteracy and poverty. Uh, we have gleaming skyscrapers. We have a space program. We have international museums and universities. We are what the Arab future looks like. And the Arab future includes embracing Israel, embracing Zionism. So it's a very powerful message. It's still not the dominant message in the Arab world. The dominant message in the Arab world is still that Israel and the Zionists are crusaders, colonialists, uh, foreigners who should, uh, you know, they're like the French in Algeria. We're going to throw them out one day. Uh, but, uh, but this is the first time we're seeing a really interesting alternative. Actually, uh, the AJC does a lot of does a lot of important advocacy work around uh, purely Israeli questions, and I wonder how you've been uh, tackling some of these issues yourself as the Abraham Accords uh, unfolded. Uh, you know, it seems like uh, in some ways the the Abraham Accords have also reframed. Uh, the pro-Israel argument, right? It seems like uh, there was a time when uh, even uh, surmising uh, uh, an even slightly pro-Israeli argument in, in, a, in a diplomatic context, you know, uh, 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 invited just so many enemies, even in a European context, that it was very hard for organizations like yours to uh, to, to to tie up an argument that that was uh, that was that was um, convincing. So. Um, in, in this particular context with the Abraham Accords, what are you what are you experiencing? Is it is the the um, the kind of pro-Israel advocacy you uh, you carry out uh, made easier by the Abraham Accords? And what are some, what's some of the interesting pushback you're getting uh, from your audiences in Europe? And then uh, and then after that, we'll turn to to the to the legislative race. Thank sure. you. Um, so first of all, I I, um, I would like to um, do a little bit of auto promo here. Um, you mentioned that it was unexpected. I think um, for us here at AJC, um, it, it wasn't so unexpected. Um, the reality is that uh, over the past really, you know, nearly two to three decades, we have been very working very, very hard 
exactly towards that goal. Um, my colleague Jason Isaacson in particular, um, who of course um, followed the vision of, of the CEO David Harris, has really been a champion on this. He has traveled for decades to the Gulf, to North Africa, um, to countries which didn't have any diplomatic relations uh, with Israel. Last year at our annual conference of the Global Forum, we hosted um, the, the, the foreign minister of the UAE, um, so I, 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 to us, it wasn't it wasn't that much of the su surprise, maybe the moment, the realization. But that was something that we have been hoping for and working towards really for decades. And this is why I can actually announce it here. And it's sort of a, a, a big deal is that we will actually soon be opening an office um, in, in the UAE. Um, and, and basically, the idea behind it was to say that, you know, we, we believe that this represents a formidable opportunity, uh, not only for Israel, but for the region, uh, that Israeli Arab peace, economic, political and cultural development um, can only be beneficial and that it doesn't necessarily have to go th through what many have always thought, uh, the resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict first. Um, and, and I think for European, it's uh, at least in the conversation that I've had, it's they have indeed been taken a, a little bit aback by this um, because they have always believed um, that um, pressuring Israel um, to some extent is the only way forward. That, you know, resolving the Israeli, what they, they call the Middle East peace, um, as if um, the rest of the Middle East was uh, there, there was so much peace. Um, uh, could only happen. It could only happen if, if if Israel was to to be pressured. Now to see, uh, for example, that um, you know the, the the normalization deal, the Abraham Accords, for example, halted the annexation plan. I think was something that um, you know wasn't part of the the way of thinking. Um, um, of, of many Europeans. Another lesson I think for Europeans is um, that uh, the deal basically demonstrated that this traditional paradigm that made the Israeli-Palestinian conflict really the core of all problems in the Middle East has been a total myth all along. Uh, it shows that Israelis are craving for peace, for regional development, and, and that maybe it can happen the, the other way around. And and I think, um, I, I hope that another lesson can be and something that I, I will be trying to push um, and help realize here is we have been speaking a lot in Europe about the importation of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as sort of a, as, as sort of a reason of why there, there, there was anti-Semitism um, in, in Europe. Well, if, if this was to be even partly of a reality, um, maybe we can import something else. Um, we have, you know, a, a huge number of Israeli, Moroccan, Moroccan, for example, national, uh, sorry, French Moroccan nationals here in France or of French nationals with Moroccan origins. Um, the fact that um, that this peace, and as Anad just said, this real peace, not just uh, you know a peace agreement that is signed, but something that uh, goes far beyond that, that will include Zionism, that will include the understanding of the Jewish heritage, for example, in Morocco. Um, if this is really to to see the light, then maybe um, this can actually also have an impact, a positive impact here on European ground. 
So I want to um, pivot a bit to the question of the Australia elections and how the Abraham Accord play into all this. Because there was another legislative race in, in March. It seems it's become a bit of a Israeli tradition to have elections every six months. This is the fourth election in two years. And there's no clear winner again. And uh, But despite this kind of coalitional, um, how can I say, battlefield, there seems to be some prospects for Netanyahu to somehow renew his mandate, including a potential effort to reach out to the Arab majority joint list of parties. Einat, you've been into in that environment for a long time. Uh, what do you make of these uh, uh, rumours of a potential outreach towards uh, the uh, Arab majority joint list parties? And how do you see that being consequence of the Abraham uh, Accords? So there are no longer rumours. It's very clear that one of the things that happened as a result of the several election cycles is that processes that might have taken many more years were actually uh, rushed. Uh, and one of them is the integration of the Arabs into the into the Israeli political system as active players. I mean, they always had their representation in the Israeli Knesset, and they are very effect, effective parliamentarians. But because of their, if I'm going to be kind, ambivalent attitudes towards Zionism and the state of Israel, uh, they always made a point of not participating actively in the political gangs, certainly not being members of uh, governments. Uh, in these past few election rounds, this has changed, and a lot of it changed from the bottom up. The Arab sentiment within Israel was that they are sick and tired of not being uh, political players, and they want to start the political game. And in order to start the political game, you can't say no, 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 no. You have to be able to say yes, and let's negotiate. Let's see what you can give you, me and what I could give you, but I want you... Uh, the Jewish Zionist parties to count the Arab parties as votes that are part of the play of, uh, of politics. And, um, and this has changed. And certainly the Abraham Accords have played into it uh, from, uh, you know, from members of the Likud uh, speaking Arabic uh, on various in the Knesset and campaigns, uh, highlighting the accords. I mean, Netanyahu even said openly in various campaigns as he was campaigning among Arab citizens, uh, he says there's no reason that it shouldn't be like Dubai here or that we shouldn't have those kinds of relations. Um, so uh, th there's definitely, it all works together. Uh, and, and you can definitely see that. And this is really one of the biggest changes that has taken place. Uh, it still remains to be seen as to whether this is a kind of, you know, the comparison is always with the Haredis. The Haredis, for their own historical reasons, uh, the ultra-Orthodox Jews, they have their ambivalent attitude towards Zionism, and but they have made a choice. Most Haredis made a choice many decades ago to be active political players in the Israeli political system, uh, basically to care for their own. Uh, and there are some who are saying that this should be the model for the Arabs, they, uh, kind of, it doesn't mean that they become Zionist. It doesn't mean that they've made their peace with Jewish self-determination, but they're going to be a player in the political system in order to take care of their own. That's one direction, which is, as far as I'm concerned, not very great. I mean, it's not terrible, but it's not great. The other direction is really one in which Israel's Arab citizens 
increasingly view themselves as Israelis, take pride in their Israeli identity. There's a lot of polls that are pointing in that direction. This is certainly one of the reasons why Arab parties were under pressure to finally enter the game as active players. Uh, but this remains to be seen. Thank you very much, um, Einat. Simon, do you have any thoughts on this? And more generally, how does your work as uh, advocacy work here in, in Europe uh, is influenced by the way Israeli politics uh, shake up? Um, listen, I don't have so much to say about the intern Israeli um uh, how it plays out. It's, it's, it, if I might just say, looking at it from abroad, um, I think it's really encouraging to see the vibrancy of Israel's democracy um, and quite exasperating um, at the same time as it demonstrates really the, the difficulty, I think, also of the Israeli electoral system, uh, the divisiveness to some extent of the Israeli society, uh, the dif- difficulty in getting consensus in anything, um, so it, it, it's 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 conflicting, um, uh, and uh, and uh, I think to some extent it, it uh, um, I think it plays out here um, as well. In some extent, people look at this a little bit at you know wide-eyed, uh, eyed, uh, really not uh, admiring the 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 level of, of of democracy, particularly when you you know when we look at the at the rest of the region, and I think also. Paradoxically, paradoxically, to see at the other hand of what's happening on the Palestinian side, uh, you know, Israel is possibly heading into a fifth election uh, in two years, and the Palestinians, on the other hand, haven't had any elections uh, since 2006, and now it seems won't have happen anytime soon. Um, so I think, uh, you know, th- that obviously, um, you know, has an impact, and the way I think Europeans look. At the, at the Israeli-Palestinian um, conflict, at Israel um, itself, and again, I think on the on, on what Enad just described on on sort of you know the way um, the the role played by Israeli Arabs in in uh, in Israeli society, I think uh, on a European scale is is absolutely not yet grasped or understood. Um, you know, sometimes it it takes Europeans quite a long time to understand developments um, as they happen um, in in Israel. Wonderful. And this is a really, really useful segue into our last question, which we'll ask uh, the the both of you to be rather brief. But uh, this particular example you give, Simon, of Europeans not yet fully tying their heads around uh, the possibility of Arabs who are, uh, you know, who have uh, fully claimed their Israeli citizenship and they're being productive and and really... uh, and really uh, positive actors in, in the Israeli political spectrum, as, as Anat said, uh, working for their own within the Israeli context. It seems like that's a good microcosm of the many, many things that we as Europeans and Westerners haven't yet fully caught up to in terms of Israel's long journey towards normalize, normalizing its its uh, ties to the rest of the, 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 the Arab world, but also internally. So uh, I, I wanted to get maybe some, some brief comment from Ainat first and then, and then from Simon, uh, just as a way to conclude our, our, our dialogue. Um, th- this is really going to sound like a cliche, but um, a, a few of the, um, few of the episodes that, that we've uh, were witness to just, just recently are a good microcosm of the anti-Israel bias in, in Western media. And I'm, I'm thinking of the uh, naturally the COVID uh, campaigns and a lot of the disinformation that we saw 
uh, from even some of the most reputable Western media outlets that were misreporting and mis- mis- systematically mis- mischaracterizing some of the objective facts of the, the vaccination campaign in Israel, uh, but also some more recently, the rocket fire that we've seen rela- relapse from uh, Gaza into, into southern Israel. So these are all just examples of a broader problem uh, that we just systematically see uh, in terms of the way Israel is covered with this systematic uh, bias against Israel. And I wonder if there, there are any lessons that you'd like to share, starting with Ainat and then from Simon quite briefly, uh, any lessons that you draw from the past couple of years, from the COVID uh, context, but also going further back, maybe the past five to 10 years, any lessons that you'd like to share with our audience in terms of what, what are, how do we, how do we approach this, this context and how do we, how can we adjust for the anti-Israel uh, bias in, in the media? For me, the main lesson was actually the extent to which it's just become disconnected from what's happening here. Uh, you know, when it became very clear that Israel's vaccination campaign is truly uh, a worldwide success and that it's an example, uh, again, uh, there there was this instinct of, okay, if Israel is number one in something good, there must be something sinister going on, right? It can't just be uh, something good. And they went on with this uh, angle of like, what about the Palestinians? Now, ironically, of course, the Palestinians immediately, they were not the ones who started this campaign. They immediately came out with an announcement that says it's actually not Israel's business. Uh, We have been vaccinating our population for over three decades now. It's our responsibility. We are in the process of uh, purchasing vaccines from Russia. That's uh, whom they chose to go to. And it's not Israel's responsibility. And the thing is that nobody cared that the Palestinians also said that it's not Israel's responsibility So, because this campaign was just too good. The campaign, uh, I compared it all to all the other campaigns, you know, uh, the pink washing campaign, the vegan washing. Every time Israel something does something good, there has to be a sinister element to it. You can't just report that it's something good. So... And if that means ignoring the Palestinians themselves, then so be it. And, you know, after a while, the the Palestinians decided to stop uh, saying anything because, you know, if people are going to say that Israel is evil, they're going they're not going to stop them. But it just showed me that this connect between the campaigns and the discussions that are taking place in the West that truly have to do with their ancient uh, attachment to stories about the sinister Jews uh, compared to the actual reality. And uh, certainly in Israel, what you can see is that increasingly Israelis, uh, and I think that's great, they just don't care. Uh, they look at this, they're like, it has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with Israelis. Whatever you Westerners, whatever problems you have, leave us alone because it's not about us. It's clearly about you. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with um, with the fact that it's more about us than it's about them. And when I mean it's more about us Europeans, um, and that I think is is not really any has not has not not so much to do with the current situation. Um, I, I've always thought that to some extent the way that the Europeans look at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is often to some extent um, they use the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as a sort of a therapy. Um, as, a, as a collective psychotherapy that has to do with so many things and it goes to, has to do with, with, with Europe's own historical past from, from the Holocaust to, of course, its colonial past. 
Um, and, and, and so, yeah, at the end of the day, unfortunately, it says much more um, about, about us Europeans than it says about Israelis. But if I may, um, I think um, just two comments. The first is I think to some extent we are, we are um, soon to commemorate the 20th anniversary of the Durban conference. Uh, which also coincided with the collapse of the peace process and the and the course of and of course 9/11, and I think to some extent that was the beginning of of, of something um, that I think has not uh, has has of course a lot many people have written about it, but but I think uh, you know it, it would be worthwhile having a a common reflection of of of, of some of this because I think it it, it demonstrated the extent to which. Um, the the Western world to some extent um, was sick, and I think we're still paying the price of this um, today. That being said, and maybe we can end on that positive note. Yes, there was a lot of what you described. Yes, there there, there was manipulation of of, of information and media, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But at the same time, I have to say, um, I have rarely seen so many positive news articles. Um, uh, about Israel, about the Israeli example of COVID, uh, dealing with COVID, as I have um, uh, basically over the past 20 years. And there is something, I think, happening. Number one, I think a growing understanding that Israel is part of the liberal world order, that Israel uh, has a lot to bring to the table from its capacity to you know, deal with crises like these, uh, with the incredible capacity to have resilience of Let's let's talk about the, the 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 of course the the the, the terrorist attacks, but also you know the, typically this COVID crisis, and also um, I think to some extent uh, a, a certain fatigue by the Israeli Palestine of, of the Israeli Palestinian conflict and a willingness I think to people by people to just look at Israel also in a different light and, and looking at Israel as a country in itself. Uh, not just linked to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I think this is, again, it's, it's just the beginning, but I think it's starting to happen. And if, if I look at the articles and then compare the articles today with articles from 20 years ago, there has, there has been change. So, Ainat and Simona are out. Jorge, what did you make about this very timely episode on, on Israel? Right, right. So it was it wasn't um, the, the the timeliness of it was a little unforeseen. I mean, we we had sort of uh, conceived of this episode uh, primarily uh, as a way to react to the to the Sarah Limi uh, developments, right, and this this uh, the, the rulings that have uh, that have repeatedly uh, denied uh, the Alimi family the justice they they deserve. So. So it was. It wasn't necessarily an episode uh, on uh, on Israel itself, and to the extent that it was, we wanted to relate um, Israel's uh, global fight against anti-Semitism to this, the specific case of Sarah Alimi. And, and and the the interesting thing that that happened was, I mean, obviously this was this episode was uh, conceived and leading up to to Yom Chatz Maut, which was I think about a month ago or slightly longer, and. Um, and when we'd uh, gotten our two guests uh, together uh, shortly after uh, Israel is, is uh, you know, back, back uh, center stage in, in the global news cycle with uh, this latest round of uh, rocket fire uh, raining down on, on southern Israel and beyond from, from Gaza. And, and some of the latest uh, news that we are hearing is that the, the rocket fire that is being launched out of Gaza is, is reaching uh, really unprecedented um, 
is really having an unprecedented reach into parts of Israel, that, into even Tel Aviv, so some of the urban hotspots north of, uh, of Gaza along the coast. So, uh, so th this is all, I think, playing, playing out rather nicely uh, for, 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 for the episode itself. Uh, unfortunate as, as the events are, I think they're, they're going to help uh, a lot of our audience uh, realize the, the importance of, of, uh, of the state of Israel. We even mentioned the, uh, the case of you know, the 2015 uh, cycle of attacks that saw uh, the Likud government have uh, play a really, really uh, a hard-edged role in, in, you know, in calling for European governments to beef up uh, their, their defensive Jewish communities uh, in their, in their, uh, within their borders. And so it's, it's, it's an issue that isn't uh, necessarily um, uh, you know, uh, easy to discuss. There's a lot of divisions within it, but, uh, but I think it, it was really important for us to gather uh, Simon and, and Inet. Uh, and I think as we said towards the start, it, it's, a, it's a conversation that tends to happen on, set on parallel uh, tracks, right? Uh, there, there seems to be an Israeli conversation that rarely gets plugged into the European news cycle and vice versa. The way that you, we Europeans discuss issues like the Alimi affair doesn't necessarily always take into account the way that the issue is lived in Israel. So, so I, I was really glad to be able to do this episode. And, and what did you think? I mean, I'm sure you've got a lot of, um, you've got a, you know, you're following the, the geopolitics of this rather closely. So, uh, so uh, any, any reactions? Well, what is interesting is that the tensions in, 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 in Palestine, in, this, in Israel, are largely first and foremost the result of local Palestinian tensions where the uh, there was uh, supposed to be Palestinian elections, but Hamas was expected to win. Therefore, the Palestinian Authority decided not to hold the elections, created a lot of anger. Um, now, obviously, there's, there's some kind of unique uh, Israeli policies on colonization, one which have created a lot of anger. Um, but people are underestimating how much of it is also kind of internal Palestinian politics uh, playing a role here. And no, I, I don't think I have any kind of a profound insights on what's happening. It's, it's evolving very quickly and whatnot. Uh, but I want to want, want to bounce back a little bit on uh, the relationship well, the way Israel plays as kind of a um, universal guardian against anti-Semitism, which, which also kind of leads to uncomfortable situations, which uh, Simone and Ainata mentioned, which is French Jews, uh, European Jews want to be European Jews. You know, they want to be French and, and, and only French and, you know, and, and any kind of accusations of dual loyalty are, are heinous. But um, at the same time, there's always this kind of option of going to Israel and it, it creates this kind of uncomfortable relationship, which is, you know, uh, you know uh, what Einat said, the, you know, I told you so. The, the Israeli Jews are telling the European Jews, uh, why are you guys still bothering with Europe? It's too dangerous. You know, we're not, we're not welcome. And it's an uncomfortable situation, which I never really thought about. Um, and sometimes it's much more direct. You know, we all remember when uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, after the Charlie Hebdo attacks in 2015, came to France and said to French Jews, you know, come to Israel. And that, you know, that didn't go very well with a lot of French Jews who feel they know they're, they're French and, and they shouldn't have to abandon their country and whatnot. But it's an uneasy relationship. Um, you know, obviously I understand uh, Israel's rule and, you know, when when he uh, took Eichmann in Israel and then trialed him and uh, sorry, took Eichmann from Argentina to try him in, Ar in Israel, uh, it, it felt legitimate. Um, but at the same time, at the same time, you, you, you also want to leave the opportunity for French Jews, British Jews to be French Jews and, and, and British Jews if they so wish. Yeah. 
And what, what is so interesting, I, I thought, was uh, this, in a, in a very indirect way, ties into some of the earlier topics that, that we touched upon in other episodes, including uh, Napoleon and some, some of the changes that he, that he brought in terms of affecting the universalistic vision of the French Republic. And I, I remember us having a conversation off the record just before we went live with, I think it was uh, um, Adam Zamoyski, the historian, where... You know, we've got this vision in, in, in France, right, and, and generally, I think, in, in Europe of, you know, uh, the integration of the Israelites, the integration of the Jews as one of the as one of the core achievements of, of uh, Napoleon's vision, right, and the way that he set up the Sanhedrin and kind of having this uh, dialogue with uh, with Likult, with with the uh, the religious communities, and that that included the Jews, which was certainly a um, which is certainly a pioneering achievement when you when you think of uh, in European history as a whole, and 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 that right then and there you saw crystallized uh, just precisely the the kind of the conflict you you allude to, uh, right? The sort of emancipationist tradition within within a Judaic thought, right? The idea that the idea that Jews had a had a destiny uh, to live, uh, you know, to, to live integrated w- within the nations of Europe as as uh, uh, rights bearing. French German citizens, uh, albeit with a with a tradi- with a with a particularistic uh, origin and culture, but fully integrated within the national compact, and then and then uh, not necessarily uh, exclusive to that view. Uh, you you saw later on in the nineteenth century emerge a different uh, tradition within Judaic thought, the sort of the Zionist uh, tradition, which advocated very strongly for uh, a sense of national belonging. A sense of uh, of Jewish uh, sovereignty and the the imperative of, of building a, a Jewish homeland in, in Palestine. So I think it was really interesting how you just brought it brought it back to some of the very profound uh, contentions within uh, within um, in, in European history over the issue of. Oh, it's a it's a famous quote by the early French revolutionary Le Duc de Clermont-Tonnerre: "We have to give to the Jews everything as individuals and nothing as a nation." Um, I think that's kind of fundamentally the, the, the way we approach uh, assimilation, the way we approach different religious cultures in, in, in France and most of Europe, which is, you know, we, we deal with individuals, um, we give rights to individuals, we don't give rights to communities. Um, and, um, you know, obviously that's, that doesn't always fit so well, you know, what we call the Anglo-Saxon tradition, which is much more comfortable with giving rights to communities. Um, but at least I think that's that kind of that is kind of a theory between you know classical French liberalism and, and and many of the kind of approach to assimilation European countries have had for a long time. Absolutely, absolutely, and 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 I think I think a lot of our audience will also be mindful that you know the, some of those divisions may even play out among the guests that that, that we had on the show. I mean, yep. um, I mean from from what I understand, you know, AJC is part is kind of part of the ecosystem of, of universalistic. Uh, pro-emancipation organizations that sprung uh, in in uh, you know in, in the second half of the 19th century. And I think the Alliance Israelite Universelle is 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 uh, is somewhat part of that that ecosystem. And I think um, these organizations uh, keep uh, you know doing the, the incredibly important work of advocating for a very you know universalistic vision uh, of of, um, of Jewish identity and. Um, and I think it's really important for our audience to understand how that uh, sometimes can, uh, you know, create a, 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 um, a, you know, different viewpoints on specific issues with a different uh-huh. uh, tradition that is a more, you know, sovereignist sort of you know, even nationalist vision of of, um, of Jewish nationhood. 
So, um, yep. so I was really glad, I was really glad that we were able to bring these two uh, brilliant, brilliant intellectuals together, and and uh, and hopefully, you know, our our, um, our episode will uh, will also again be part of uh, people's uh, news diet as we see these uh, rockets uh, rain down on on yep. Israel. Um, so, thank you so much for cool. listening. But before we leave, don't forget, you can support us with so many small things like liking the show, subscribing on Spotify, rating on Apple Podcasts. All these small things really help us to make sure we keep growing our audience and make sure more people like you will be able to get their podcast. Uh,